Welcome to episode 246 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Susanna Brugler. It was Susanna's wanderlust that led her to the Navy, and she is still traveling all over the world. She attended the Naval Academy and graduated in 1998 and worked as a surface warfare officer initially out of the Naval Academy. She was in the process of switching career fields when September 11th happened, and her first job in her career as a public affairs officer started in Guantanamo Bay when the first Afghan prisoners were sent there right after the war in Afghanistan began. She eventually transitioned to be a reservist and was able to travel and do other amazing things that we'll talk about more in the interview, but she wanted to go back on active duty and found that to be very challenging. And she took a leap of faith and went on an accompanying tour, and it opened doors to her future. Today, she is back on active duty and serving as a captain in the Navy in South America. Don't forget, you can always listen to Women of the Military podcast on Reefs Across America radio. Episodes go live on Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. And you can listen to Reefs Across America Radio on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. Now with that out of the way, let's get into the interview with Captain Susanna Burglar. Welcome everyone to Women of the Military Podcast. I'm so excited to have Susanna here today to talk about her experience in the Navy. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Amanda. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for what you do. I love your podcast, and I love that you shine a light on women serving in the military. So thank you for that. I really love hearing your stories, and I'm I'm really excited because I'm about to hit episode 250, and so I'm trying to come up with a special episode to celebrate that and all the different stories I've got to hear, but it's really just a life passion, and I love it. It shows. So let's start with your story and why did you decide to join the military? Yeah, great question. I love that you open with this story because everybody's story is unique. My story is that I grew up in a small town uh, called Defiance, Ohio. It was, um, I think the slogan is actually, it's a great place to live and it is a good place to live. It's in, I I would extend it to say it's a great place to be from. Uh, it instilled in me some Midwestern values and the public schools that I attended were, were just wonderful, had great teachers. But I always, since I was very young, had this wanderlust. I always wanted to get out of not just defiance, but I wanted to get out of Ohio. And our my parents who are both educators, they were both teachers, they told their four children, I'm one of four, that we absolutely want to support you in going to college. However, you must go to a state school because that's what we can afford. And so for me, uh, like I said, I had dreamed dreams beyond Ohio. And quite frankly, going uh, to a service academy was a means for me to go to college outside of Ohio. I uh, selected the Naval Academy because I sang in the choir in high school, and we, when I was a sophomore, we went on a tour to Washington, D.C., and we visited Annapolis, and I really fell in love with Annapolis, and we also visited the Naval Academy, and there was a moment when we were touring the chapel, and I just felt like I was, like this was my place, you know, it was, it was, yeah, <laughs> something, you know, it, it was a spirit speaking. 
to me, I, I, I have to say, because the road was a little bit longer for me to get into the Naval Academy. Uh, I ended up being a foundation student. So I didn't get in the first year that I applied, but I did get in the second year I applied. So anyway, that's a uh, long story short. That's what interested me in serving in the Navy. I love that. I love that you talked on a few things like you had this like part of who you were who wanted to travel and see the world and you didn't want to stay in the little small town in Ohio. And then the Naval Academy just kind of pulled you in. And then the last thing I really want to talk about is because a lot of people don't realize that well, I guess they know it's really hard to get into the academies. They should know. It's really challenging. But if you don't get in the first year, there are other options. There's been a few people I've interviewed who have done different things so that they could get into the academies. And it isn't always a straight line. And so if it's really a passion, there's a way to make it happen. Absolutely. And and I want to add, you know, I was a younger birthday. My birthday was in June. So I was always a little younger in my um, growing up and you know, grade school and in high school. And I really do think, um, so I was, when I applied to the Naval Academy, uh, I was uh, given an opportunity or I was selected, if you will, to work on, it was really, I think my test scores. I don't think my SATs and AACTs, my my GPA was good, but they wanted me to work to brush up on my calculus. And so they gave me an opportunity to be a foundation student. So I went to a civilian prep school, but the whole idea was for me to brush up really on my math so that I would be competitive and I would, so that I would be successful in going to the Naval Academy. And it worked perfectly for me. And not only that, but Amanda, I have to tell you, because I spent an extra year in high school and I really didn't want to be spending an extra year in high school. (laughs) When I arrived to the Naval Academy, there was no way anybody was going to convince me I didn't belong there. Nobody was going to tell me that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't smart enough. I knew that I had been through, I, you know, I had put, I paid my dues. I put in an extra year just to be there. And I think it was my saving grace. I think it saved me many a times when I started it to kind of uh, feel like it was, it was, you know, a lot. Um, The academics were very hard, but, you know, and especially in my military training, when things were getting rough, I thought. I've put in too much skin in this game. I'm finishing this. And it really it really helped me in the end. I love hearing that story because it's not easy to go through the Naval Academy. That was going to be my next question originally. But I love how you gave that like context of like, I am not quitting. I don't care how hard it is. I am not quitting. Exactly. Yeah. Because people do quit. It's not not getting in is like the first step, but getting through the four years is another challenge on its own. And and it's not for everybody. And there is no shame in that. Definitely. I've known people who started at a service academy. In fact, my brother is one of them. He started at West Point, but you know, he left after Beast Barracks. Um, he really wanted to play football and he, he didn't make the, uh, make it as a walk-on on the football team. So he found another path and now he's thriving in his life. So, you know, the service academies aren't for everybody, but I appreciate that you, Amanda, what you had started with it. It is hard to get into a service academy. You have to get a nomination from a congressman or a senator, or you can get a presidential nomination. I think if you if you certain meet certain qualifications, if you have family members who have served, there's a whole a gamut of ways that you can get your nomination, but it's a very important step. 
And in addition to that, you also have to academically qualify and you have to uh, get into the institution itself. And I think because the application process is so rigorous that it's true what they say. They say, if you can get in, you can graduate, but it's up to you between, you know, I induction day and graduation day. It's up to that you know, that wherewithal, that, you know, deep-seated conviction within of whether you want to actually achieve that goal or not. Um, And uh, yeah, there's many paths. I've even known people, by the way, who have left the service academy, left the Naval Academy, and found another path into the Navy. And so, yeah, that's what I, and I'm glad we're touching on this. That's what I love about the Navy. And that's what I love about the military in general, is that, there are so many people and no, no two paths are the same. And, and you know, just, just like we opened with your uh, podcast, like everyone's story is different, but the common thread, the service is so important. It's so ingrained in us to serve. There's a call to serve. There is um, a spirit of patriotism. I, you know, just, just these qualities that bind us um, and they're so important and they're very basic and you can have many different people of many different flavors, personalities, but you will always find in each person who has served in uniform that love of country, that patriotism, and that dedication that dedication to service. Yeah, I love all that. That's so great. So let's talk a little bit about your time at the academies, or at the academies, the academy. Uh, what was that experience like, and how did it change you? I graduated in 1998, so it's important that we set, you know, we start with that. I now, uh, you know, as a captain, as an 06 in the Navy, I'm of the older generation. Yeah, and um, you know, we have, um, you know, people who are entering the Navy who are—they're not just half my age, you know. They're—they're they're soon to be a third of my age, and you know, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So. When I went to the Naval Academy, um, my first day was uh, July 1st in 1994, I was part of, I think there were about 14% women. And I had never been in that kind of minority before. And that's a noticeable one. So to give you an idea, if we had a class, say an English class of 20 people, I might be the only woman in, in the class or maybe one other woman. So that kind of gives you... Um, a little perspective on what it was like. It, it was challenging. Uh, the Naval Academy and the service academies um, have, you know, they started admitting women in uh, 19, 1976. And the first graduating class was in 1980. So women hadn't been to the service academies for 20 years yet when I, when I was there. And they have grown in leaps and bounds and with an increase in women's admissions. And I believe it's 25% or more. Like that is uh, a percentage where you, you start to get, um, you know, a, a, a mass going and um, it, you don't feel as lonely as perhaps maybe I did. And um, what's interesting is, yes, there were other women who were in my class. And I think uh, after graduation, we grew much closer than when, when we were actually there. And that's kind of, I don't know if that's unique for the service academies, but, you know, when you're there, you might not get along. <laughs> you know, you, you might have so such different personalities or different perspectives, different backgrounds, and you don't recognize, you know, at a young age in, in your late teens and your early 20s, again, those values that I talked about. I didn't care as much about patriotism. I didn't care much as much about service. I didn't 
care as much, um, you know, about these things that now that I'm older, I truly value. And I think most people, you know, I, I think would probably feel the same way. So part of it's maturing, a lot of it's maturing. But the other part too is, you know, when you have 14%, and so we graduated with just just under 1,000, I think, and we had, um, you know, maybe around 100 uh, women graduates. So, yeah, I mean, it, it it did kind of form me and shape me. It toughened me up for sure. <laughs> it kind of let, uh, gave me um, a more of a realistic view of perhaps what the real world was like. And the reason why I say that is because I was a generation who was raised, you know, a post-feminist movement. So I was raised to believe that I could do whatever I wanted to do. And, um, uh, you know, when you are kind of faced with reality and you realize, well, not everybody thinks the same way and that there are limitations because of, um, you know, institutional structures and organizational structures that we continue to work on and we continue to build on and we continue to educate and improve upon. Perhaps you, you may have been, um, you know, raised in an environment that really wasn't um, realistic. And I, and I want to give you a really great example of what I'm talking about. When I was in high school, I never dreamed that when I was approaching 50, which I'm approaching 50 now, that we would not have a woman president. I never dreamed that. And here we are today. Again, I'm approaching 50 and we have not, we have yet to have a woman president. So that's kind of, it's, it's those real, the realism, you know, throwing that in there. And um, yeah, the, the Naval Academy gave me a, a, a taste of that. For sure. Yeah. I was thinking about, I went to college and I think there was probably like 20, 25% engineering students that were women. And so to think, and then I joined the military after college and it went down dramatically. And so it was kind of like a step process and it really did change, you know, like thinking about like I had five to seven women out of like 20 to 30 students that were women in my engineering classes going to, you know, being in the military and being one of the only females, or maybe there's two of us like in different situations. And so I think that really, I mean, it's, it's a big difference. Like you think, oh, five isn't that big, but one to five is like a huge difference and it makes you not feel alone and like you stand out as much. I think the engineering field is a great analogy. My husband is a civil engineer. There's so many parallels with my military life and my experience as a woman in the military and I, the women that he works with and the women that he leads, you know, as an engineer and we trade notes all the time. Uh, and so I'm so glad you shared that perspective because it's absolutely true. It, I mean, it is. I remember when I first went into my um, engineering orientation, the old professor, he was very old and he was like, am I in the right room? Why are there so many women here? And it was kind of like he was trying to deter us from even considering engineering from the get go. It was really like a very snide offhand remark. And like, obviously it's the right room, you know where you're at, but he like, just couldn't believe there were so many women, which meant there were women, not that there were like 50-50. Absolutely. I, absolutely. And and um, I do want to say, because I do love my alma mater, and by the way, I'm going to... I'm traveling there in a couple of days because I'm, we're going to be celebrating my 25th uh, reunion. I, I can't believe it's been 25 years since we graduated. Just look at the Navy today and the progression that we've made. 
we have an acting chief of naval operations who is a woman, Admiral Franchetti, Admiral Lisa Franchetti. And I'll say when she gets, um, you know, when she gets approved, when, 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 when the Senate does approve her position and uh, she'll be the first woman to serve on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So I, 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 do, I do want to turn and, and take a look at how far we've come. And I, you know, I'm living proof of, of how far we've come. And, and I'm so proud of the Navy. I'm proud of our leadership. Uh, I, you know, I'm proud of our sailors for making that happen. Yeah, there's been so much change and so much progress made. And as I've done the podcast, I've gotten to learn about the history of women and to see the different, you know, stages. And it's just amazing to see all the things that women did for the next generation and how we continually strive to make it better. And I think that's like the coolest part is like every woman who has done something, they did it for themselves, yes, but they also knew or they had this pressure on themselves to do it well so that the next generation could follow them. And I think that's a really interesting and like unique dynamic to being a woman in the military. It is. And I'm glad that you recognize that. I'll be honest, it took me a little, a little time. It probably wasn't until I hit my 40s uh, that I recognized how, just how hard the women before me had worked to open the doors for me to step through. And it was at around the same time when I recognized that my service was no longer for me. And I'll just, Amanda, I'll, I'll sidebar a little bit and I'll tell you about my experience. I was, um, I was not selected for captain four times. Four times I was not selected to promote to captain. And I think it was after the third time when I wasn't selected, I thought, okay, I have a limited amount of time of service left. I am, you know, and um, it was at a point where I was a, a young mother, meaning I had an infant at home and that uh, the physiological responsibilities of being pregnant and then breastfeeding that was impacting my career because I phys physiologically and physically could not do the same things that my male counterparts could. And it was reflected in how my career progressed. So I said to myself, I'm, my service is no longer about me and, and my promotions and where my career is headed. I am going to speak up. I'm going to talk about my experience. And I don't care who wants to listen and who doesn't. I'm going to do it for the women and the men, quite frankly, behind me. And, you know, it's, it's so funny because one, once you're called to that kind of um, an elevated call to service, if you will, then look what happened. <laughs> you know, on my fifth look, I was selected for captain. And um, I, think, I, think, I think it was my change in perspective, which had a lot to do with that. And I feel so grateful to be here today to tell you my story and um, to let others know, because it's an important one. I love hearing that story and the vulnerability and the shift in focus. Even if you hadn't reached the rank of captain, I'm sure those last few years would have been so impactful because of how you shifted. They were more fulfilling. They were years of service where I was more fulfilled. And they weren't easy. And it still isn't easy because when the time is appropriate and I think it's right, I will still speak up and, and let people know. And, um, you know, change is hard. Cultural change is even harder. You know, I believe in this mo movement. And again, it's um, that's why I'm so happy to be here today and um, just adoring the work that you do, Amanda, because you're so dedicated to it. So so thank you. We, we need to hear more voices for sure.
Thank you. I, I really love it. So we got a little distracted, but also a great conversation. But let's go back to when you went on active duty. What was your career build and where did you go? And I know you said 1998. And I talk about September 11th on the podcast a lot because it changed the military. And so I always like to like touch on how that affected you, especially if you served before and then also after. Wonderful. So I service selected um, surface warfare. I really wanted to be a public affairs officer. I wanted to be a Navy communicator. But if you go to a service academy, if you go to the Naval Academy, you have to service select a warfare designator. And I actually am a huge advocate of that because after I served as a surface warfare officer, I was on an Aegis cruiser out of Yokosuka, Japan. Back on this theme, I was one of four women out of a crew of 350. And the reason why is because just as timing would have it, I was one of the first women to integrate uh, surf- surface combatant ships, so ships that carried missiles and harpoons and you know all, all the all, all the things that are out there as we you know conduct patrols and whatnot around the world. I, I was one of the first, so um, that was a difficult year for me when I was one of four women out of 350. After the first year, we integrated the crew. We brought aboard, I don't know, between 20 and 30 enlisted crew members. And my quality of work life, you know, increased incredibly because I just wasn't under the microscope like I was when I was one of four, like we all were. But yeah, I really, again, I I go back to, I really wanted to be a public affairs officer and being a surface warfare officer. I mean, how, how Navy can you get? That gave me the chop to become a Navy spokeswoman. And I thrived in that career field. Now, 9-11 hit. I think I was in between designations, in between being a surface warfare officer and being a public affairs officer. And so sure enough, after I went to the defense information school, this was back in, I think, probably 2001, then I was sent to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba to serve as a media escort for the first detainee flights flying in detainees from Afghanistan. So that was my first public affairs assignment. And wow, I mean, that was, you know, jumping like right into the fire there. But it was important work. I really thrive when I feel like the work that I do is meaningful. And without a doubt, that was meaningful work. It was back when we had Camp X-Ray there. And we, you know, this was a shock to the world. And it was a shock to us. I think it. I don't want to, I, I was already motivated to serve. Like, like I mentioned before, there was a sense of patriotism that my parents instilled in me, but definitely the, uh, you know, I, and I just a scene setter. Um, when I graduated from the Naval Academy, in fact, uh, President Bill Clinton, you know, what was at our graduation, he, he spoke at our graduation ceremony. So I think in the, and the waning in the later Clinton years, we had been, quote, unquote, at peace. We were a peacetime military. And I think having like a recentering after 9-11 and really kind of zeroing in and um, getting a, a mission or like like more of a purpose rather than MUTWA, which is military oper- operations other than war or, you know, Bosnia or, you know, I think that uh, really united everybody and it reunited so many people, um, so many Americans that we had a lot of people, you know, come and join the service. So, you know, aside from uh, the grief and the shock of uh, post 9-11, it did a lot to unite us as a country. Um, And I think, you know, continue in years to come, we'll kind of reflect on that period as a period when the country was really united. And that was special serving in uniform during that time. Yeah, I went 
back to the ROTC detachment that I was in last year, and I sat in on a few classes, and they were talking about, like, stuff that I learned at combat skills training, and I was like, man, we were, like, so not ready for a war when September 11th happened, because I went to college from, or I did ROTC 2003 to 2007, and all that stuff that they were learning, I didn't learn until I deployed in 2010, and it was just that, I mean, years after the war had started, Iraq was going on, and the military still was, like, scrambling to get out of what they had learned in Desert Storm. Right. You know, yeah, I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because even when I was at my deployment training, I was like, why are we learning all this stuff that we would learn for the war in the 90s and I was like oh because they're still like scrambling to like try and update the training and it was really interesting to see that whole shift because it was like such an eye-opening experience when I'm sitting there and they're like learning combat lifesaver and I'm like how did you learn this as a cadet when like I didn't learn it till right when I was about to deploy which you know one class right before you deploy is really not helpful the constant doing it Yeah, so it was really interesting. It's a generational mind shift. And Amanda, we're going through that again now with the integration of unmanned systems and trying to figure out how are we going to update and upgrade and integrate our existing platforms with the unmanned capability. And yeah, wow, what what a throwback. And and I love, I, I didn't realize that we were so close generationally or, you know, we're of the same generation and, and that, that explains a lot. Now, now I know, I just, I realized your service was a little bit later, I started a little later than mine, but then, yeah, now I get it in school. Not too much later. I'm getting closer to 40, which my mom's like, stop saying that. I'm <laughs> like, why does it matter? But it's, um, it's pretty exciting. I mean, I, I really enjoyed my time in the military and September 11th was like, what brought me in and so I think that's part of why I find so much fascination but it's just crazy to realize like how much change was like catapulted onto you know the United States and the military and everything and it still affects us today and a lot of people don't realize that because they've just like the TSA was created because of September 11th and I learned that from the podcast I was also going to touch on I like the idea of like I know the army And now I know the Navy, like they have, you do like your actual, like being a soldier or being a surface warfare officer. I think that's really good, especially for a PA officer, because in the Air Force, you go straight into PA, which isn't a bad thing, but it also kind of like doesn't have you like integrated into what the Air Force actually does like by doing it you learn it by writing about it and so I think that's really interesting yeah it it is and I think the Navy will take some people uh direct uh, you know special cases you know so I don't want to suggest that everybody but by and large it's uh you do become a public affairs officer through a redesignation board and generally to be be an attractive candidate for that you are going to have your qualification from your your source uh, community one thing interesting about my career, which which is unique, um, is that I have lateral transferred a, a second time. So I, I for 15 years, I was a public affairs officer. And another unique thing, I, I hope I'm not piling on too many things about myself, but I also, um, after 12 and a half years, uh, became a reservist. So I served as an um, cell res, which is a traditional Navy reservist, for 11 years in my career. 
And I recently am back on permanent active duty, which in the Navy is very rare. Uh, it's very rare that that uh, somebody is allowed to do what, it, what I've done. And in addition, like I said, I, I let all transfer it. And now I'm a foreign area officer. So you're, I'm actually talking to you from Bogota, Colombia. I am the Navy mission chief here. And um, foreign area officers um, really work in the realm of security cooperation. And we work really, really closely with our, our partner nations. And it's I, definitely between actually surface to, you know, the progression from surface worker officer to public affairs officer, and then to foreign area officer, like there's so many things that I take from my surface career and my public affairs career that I use as a FAO or foreign area officer. Um, I, you know, I can't imagine doing this job without that background. You know, again, that's my personal story, but there's, there's so many, there's so much overlap in all three of these, um, you know, communities. And it's, um, it's really a privilege to serve in the way that I've served. That's really cool. I love how each thing builds on it. And I think, you know, you can always take my past, I was a civil engineer in the Air Force, and now I run a podcast and do media and doesn't seem like a straight path. But there's a lot of things from my time in engineering that I still use today and like creating processes and systems. And I think you can always take and learn and grow and build into your next career. And I love hearing that story. I want to focus in on you left active duty to be a reservist. Why did you make that switch? And then why did you make the switch again the other way? So I left active duty, like I said, at, at 12 and a half years. I'll, I'll just be honest. I was a divorcee at the time and I, um, I was in my early 30s and I didn't know what, you know, I, I was at a point where I was restless and I didn't know what I wanted in my life to include. I wasn't, I wasn't hundred percent convinced that, um, finishing my military career, which now I would tell myself you're crazy sister, but, <laughs> but back then, you know, eight years of, eight years of serving seemed like a long time to retirement. So I, I made the decision to, to leave uh, the Navy, to leave active duty. I became a reservist. I spent a year living um, in Spain because it was something that I, I really I wanted to do. I had always wanted to be an exchange student since I was, you know, in high school. And so I followed an Olmsted scholar and I call it my homespun Olmsted program because, uh, you know, I, I started uh, my reserve work while I was there, but I, I did attend a, a university in Spain and, and I did learn uh, Spanish and I did absorb the Spanish culture, which is what I really wanted to do. During that year, I started my reserve work and I, was, I started work as the Africa Partnership Station Public Affairs Officer out of our U.S. Sixth Fleet based in Naples, Italy. So I traveled to Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique, and Mauritius that year I lived in Spain. And these were dream assignments. I, again, with somebody, a child who had wanderlust, I mean, traveling to Africa, working with U.S. embassies as I, we were coordinating port visits from uh, Navy ships pulling into port. I mean, it was a dream. And I would have paid to do what I was doing, but I was, I, I was a lieutenant commander. I was in 04 and and, you know, when I, I was living as a student in Spain and I was getting, you know, when I was doing this reserve work, getting the 04 pay, I was like, this is incredible. Being a reservist is amazing. The following year, I moved to Naples, Italy, and I was invited to, again, um, to serve this time full time on what was known back then as uh, extended ADT orders, 
So for a little over eight months, I was, again, serving as the Africa Partnership Station Public Affairs Officer, traveling all around coastal Africa to include South Africa, Namibia, the West Coast of Africa, Gulf of Guinea. I mean, it was amazing. And then I was living in Naples, Italy on top of it, which I loved as well. So after two years of a really magical uh, existence, I decided I needed to find a way, a means to get back to the United States. Uh, And I, again, the reserves, there just happened to be a reserve job at NATO Allied Command Transformation in Norfolk, Virginia. And I was selected to be the Congressional Liaison Coordinator. So it was the year of sequestration. I worked for a U.S. Army two-star general whom I loved working for. He was one of my favorite bosses. And we would travel to Washington, D.C. about twice a month from Norfolk. And we would talk about the uh, importance of NATO. And Amanda, just a, a little history lesson here. Back in 2013, 2014, again, that year of sequestration, we actually thought that Russia might join NATO or, you know, like something NATO might dissolve or this was right before Crimea, before before Russia took Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula. So my things change quickly. Uh, and um, and then fast forward to today, um, you know, uh, you know, not a lot has, has changed um, as far as, um, you know, Russia and, and, and their um, ambitions. So um, it's, it's been an incredible career. But um, again, as a reservist, you can't be on active duty forever. Uh, at least in the Navy, you can't do that. It's just not set up to support somebody like that. So for me to transition from serving in uniform, and I had never intended really to do it as long as I, quite as long as I had, which was maybe uh, t- a little over two years, I found work uh, as a Navy public affairs officer, but I, as a civilian. So basically as a Department of the Navy civilian. I'll be honest, that shift was a hard one for me. And it's because I, by this time, Amanda, I had been serving in uniform for almost 15 years. So you had asked the question, you know, why, why would I want to go back onto active duty? I just, I really never left the uniform and I found it very challenging to serve in the same role in civilian clothes. This is me and this is my story. And, you know, everybody's different. You know, not everybody has the same difficulty that I had, but I I do have to, um, you know, now knowing what I know now, I do have to believe because I had, I, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I had so much time invested in the Navy and I felt like the Navy had invested in me too. It made it all the more challenging for me to to find my footing in the civilian world. So um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to digest there. Uh, and a lot of people make the transition and they do it beautifully. And and it's it's the right thing for them. At the end of the day, it wasn't the right thing for me. And at the end of the day, I held on to the hope and it was a small one, but I held on to the hope that I would be able to one day go back on active duty. And I really wanted to finish my career. It's just, it, again, I, I was drawn to this. It was, there was something inside me that told me when I was rejected time and time again, and I had worked for years to try to do this, something told me to keep going. And I did. And eventually, I, I to finish the story, when I wasn't picked up for captain that third year, that third time, I decided, well, I need to do something different. Um, I need to make a change, and I, I need to take, um, you know, I need to take charge of this. So I volunteered for um, a mobilization to the Middle East. I didn't know where it was going to be, 
but um, I knew it was going to be unaccompanied. I knew my family wasn't going to be able to go with me. It was basically an IA mobilization. The one that I was selected for was uh, in Bahrain. So I became the NAVCENT, U.S. NAVCENT liaison to the U.S. Embassy in Manama, Bahrain. And the man who I ended up working for is the man who I give a lot of credit to really uh, kind of recognizing the talent and the gifts that I had to bring uh, the Navy. His name's Vice Admiral Brad Cooper, and he's actually still in the position now, um, not because he he has another assignment, but he's being held up like a lot of our flag officers are at the moment. But uh, I, I, I so for some reason, I trusted him and I told him my dreams. I. I, I don't know why I did to this day. I don't know why um, it was something that he, he, you know, he, he allowed me to, to tell him this. And he said, you know what, Susanna, he said, I hear you. I'm going to help you. And uh, let's make this happen. So maybe he didn't say it exactly like that, but I, I really give him a lot of credit to um, helping me to not only to, to make captain, but to also um, act as um, an advocate for me, a sponsor for me. And when there was this uh, opening, this position where the Navy active duty FAO community was going to take a reservist to, to cross over and go back on the active duty side, that, uh, that I was selected for that. So very grateful, uh, as hard as it was. And my sons were very young when I made that decision to make the deployment to, you know, to the Middle East. And it was hard serving for a year um, while they were still in San Diego, um, where we were living at the time. But, um, you know, more than my dreams came true. I, 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 I couldn't have predicted or, or, or really I couldn't have dreamed that, that this would come to pass. And it, and it did. I love that you talked about how you had dreams. I think a lot of times people don't know what they want. And so when you are given the opportunity to tell someone who's of high enough rank that they can like make a difference, you're just like, I'm just here hanging out, but you were able to articulate what you wanted and what you were hoping for. And then he was able to help you. And I found that people really do want to help people, but a lot of times they don't know what that person needs. And cause a lot of times that person, cause I interviewed uh, Tahim Montoya a while ago and she had an opportunity to like, I think it was a two star and the person was like, well, what do you want to do for your career? And she's a young lieutenant captain. And she's like, well, this is what I want to do. And the lady's like, okay, here you go. And like made it all happen. But as a lieutenant captain, I don't even know if I would have known what to say, but she had like, and so I think it's really important to like set goals and dreams and be able to articulate them so that people who are in positions that they can help you are able to do that because had you not told him or had you not even known what to say when that opportunity came up, it would have just went right by. And so I think that's really powerful to talk about, like, know what you want to do. You can always pivot and change where you want to go. But if you have something that like you're striving for, instead of just like, I'm along for the ride, that's kind of how I'm <laughs> along for yeah, the ride. Yeah, I think own it, own it. You know, when when you do figure it out and look, Amanda, let's be honest, it took me quite a while to figure it out. <laughs> Perhaps if I had figured it out a little bit earlier, I, you know, the road would have wouldn't have been so windy. But it's all those turns and it's all those, um, you know, those winds in the road that have given me the confidence, have given me the perspective, have given me 
um, these gifts, you, you know, the, the selflessness to it, to it at one point say, my service is no longer about me, but it's about, it truly is about serving others. You, you know, I, I, I think it was all part of the grand path. I have yeah, but I did have a long one here. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like your interview could just keep going and going. Um, And so I want to do two more questions. One, like, what's something from your time in the Navy that we haven't touched on yet? And then, and then my advice question. Oh, gosh, the time in the Navy that we haven't touched on. Well, the Navy's amazing. I've had incredible experiences. I've transited the Straits of Taiwan twice. I have transited the Strait of Magellan, uh, which was an incredible, on an aircraft carrier. So I was on USS Ronald Reagan. We had stops in Rio de Janeiro, Valparaiso, Chile, and Callao, Peru. That was my first experience with South America. And, you know, fast forward, now here I'm living here as the as an Navy mission chief. So that's pretty special. You know, we have... Um, is your family with you in South America? My family is with me. Yes, yes. I just started this tour. We're here for three years. So we are adapting right now. It's it, it, We're still in a bit of culture shock. We've been here. I've been here um, not quite two months, but uh, yeah, but my, my children are going to school and um, and my husband's, um, you know, finding his way and working. He's working remotely and yeah, so so we're finding our way, but but the 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 good the silver lining of the whole thing is that is that we're together and we're serving together overseas, which again an, another thing about the Navy, like what an incredible experience. Um, yeah, and I already talked about my um, as the Africa Partnership Station Public Affairs Officer and what I mean. If you want, you know, I the the slogan for the Navy was when I was joining was join the Navy and see the world and. It's absolutely true. <laughs> it's absolutely true. I'm not saying you're not going to get that in other services because I know you do, but to be able to experience the world, especially from the, our world's oceans, is magical. It's just magical. No, when I talk to people, the Navy people have been to lots and lots of places, especially if they've been in, you know, over a 20 plus year career. It's like they're like, I've been all over. And it's just crazy to hear all the different places that they've got to travel to. And so, yes, the military, you can see the military and the Air Force. I was able to see different places, but not nearly as many or as diverse. Mainly it was all like stateside travel. So. That makes great points. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't beat it. You, you can't be, be in the Navy for that diversity of opportunities of places to go see the world. Yeah. So I always like to end the interview with what advice would you give to a young woman who's considering joining the military? Yeah. And I love this closing question. The advice that I would give is, is do not give up and do not expect anything to be handed to you. You know, women have had to fight for our place to where we are today. And it's going to continue. That that fight is is not going to go away. And I hearken back to um, the way I was raised to believe that I could achieve whatever I wanted. Um, not everybody is raised to believe that. Uh, so just kind of the theme that we've been striking on, when you find what is driving you and when you find what you really, your, your goals and what you want to achieve, what you want to do with your life, you just go for it. You And never stop. Don't let anybody tell you no. If you know in your heart that this is what you're supposed to be doing, then then you just go for it. I think that's a perfect way to end it. Thank you so much for being a guest and for sharing your story and for, you know, all the, all the things that you've done for 
our country through your service. So thank you oh, so much. It's been my pleasure, Amanda. Thank you again. Thank you so much.